0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: Thanks, Dewey. This is a special edition of Office Hours. In studio, we have Bob Godfrey, President and Professor of Church History at Westminster Seminary, California, and Mike Horton, J. Gresham Machin Professor of Systematic Theology and apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. We're taking your calls at 760-480-8477. Bob is author of An Autobiography at His Young Age, An Unexpected Journey. He's also author of God's Pattern for Creation and John Calvin Pilgrim and pastor. Mike has written too many books to list, but you should look for his new systematic theology, The Christian Faith, a systematic theology for pilgrims on the way, which will be available in, hopefully, January. These titles are available, as always, through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, edu. Hello, men, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. We are here today to talk about what it means to be valiant for truth. And we're here to uh, answer some phone calls, and we'll start with one right away.
2: My name is Douglas, and my question is, at what line do we draw what a heresy is and is not? Specifically, many in the so-called cage phase will fight on everything, split hairs on every single point. At what point do we say not worth it? Is this a question of wisdom? Is this a question of what heresy is and isn't? In that case, where is heresy drawn? And frankly, what's worth it and what's not?
1: What does it mean to be valiant for truth? What is truth? What is heresy? How do we sort that out? Let's start at the beginning. What does it mean to be valiant? What are we talking about?
3: Uh, Westminster Seminary California uh, recently uh, began an initiative to uh, Promote the truth under the label uh, "Valiant for Truth," and we we chose that phrase uh, because it resonates through the history of Reformed Christianity. When uh, Ned B. Stonehouse wrote his marvelous uh, biography of J. Gresham Machen, uh, who we look back to as our ultimate founder, um, uh, he subtitled that biography "Valiant for Truth," and uh, when he published that biography. I'm sure almost everyone would have recognized that that was an allusion to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the second part, where uh, one of the uh, Christians on the road to the Eternal City is named Mr. Valiant for Truth. And it's a particularly vivid portrayal by Bunyan of a man who stood in every way firm for the truth of Jesus Christ and uh, who uh, had a sword to battle for the truth in his arm, that uh, he used so faithfully that the sword became really an extension of his arm. And so the the picture that, that ba- uh, Bunyan paints there is of someone who is passionate and committed to the truth, stands up for the truth, and is uncompromising for the truth. And people who knew J. Gresham Machen or people who know of his work in particularly the 20s uh, and early 30s are aware of how Valiantly, he stood for the truth against uh, many of those who attacked that truth in a fundamental way. And uh, I suppose as a seminary, we want to make the point that it is not enough to simply assert the truth. There needs to be connected with that a certain passion for truth, a certain commitment for truth, a a certain willingness— not only to state the tr- truth positively, but to make clear that standing for the truth also implies a criticism of those who will not stand for the truth or who claim to stand for the truth but don't. And so we, we want to recapture, uh, particularly in this age that uh, sometimes seems completely unwilling to draw any distinctions, that wants to be radically uh, relativistic, we want to say that, that standing for the truth— uh, being valued for the truth, is both positively to assert the truth and to um, make clear where error is a problem. Now, the caller, interestingly, puts that issue, that, that concern, in the context of heresy. And he asks, what is heresy? And um, I think we have to recognize that heresy is not a word that has an absolute meaning in theological discussions. People use the word differently. Um, some use the word heresy to describe anything that differs from themselves. Uh, Some use it to describe anything that they perceive as theological error. Uh, Personally, I try to be very cautious with the word heresy. I think historically we have used the word heresy primarily to describe theological errors so serious that those holding such errors cannot be saved— Now, not everyone would agree with that definition of heresy either. That's the way I try to use heresy. And I think when we're being valiant for truth, my definition of heresy is useful because it means we ought to devote our greatest energy to those who are most seriously wrong. Uh, There is a danger in Reformed Christianity that we fight over every little issue and that we uh, become simply contentious people. That is not what being valiant for the truth is really about. It's about standing up for the most basic elements of our faith and insisting that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the authority of his word, these are the things above all else that we're standing for in a dark age.
2: I, I think, too, valiant for truth is different from belligerent for truth. And, you know, there's a a question, first of all, of content and a question of character. And Peter tells us that we need to be prepared to give an answer, a reasoned explanation, defense, for the hope that we have to anyone who asks, but in a spirit of gentleness and patience. And so it's not just what we say that's important, but how we say it. And uh, being valiant for truth simply means that that we take uh, truth seriously and— it's not just a a, a hypothetical uh, good. It is an essential good for the people of God, and not just the people of God, but for those uh, whom he's chosen from the foundation of the world who have yet to hear that gospel and respond to it. We've got to get the gospel right and get the gospel out, and those aren't uh, opposing, uh, opposing interests. One thing to add there, too— uh, our 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 older theologians, I think, have given us a lot of mature wisdom about how to discern heresy from error. As you mentioned, uh, one one of them, Francis Turretin, for example, said that there are errors at the foundation, and then there are errors around the foundation. So, for example, if you deny the the Trinity, uh, you are explicitly rejecting the Christian faith. That is an error at the foundation. But if you uh, if you uh, formulate uh, something that uh, is not strictly speaking uh, the best way of putting it, the be- best way of talking about the Trinity, uh, that might not be an attack on the doctrine of the Trinity, a rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity. But if if left uncorrected. If taken to its logical conclusion, it will eat away around the foundation. And so there are two ways of of destroying the foundation. One is a direct hit, and the other is subtle undermining. We have to distinguish the one from the other. And then there are the errors that uh, are not uh, even around the foundation, but are errors that are, are we believe, wrong. For example, Dispensational premillennialism, but is not necessarily an error even around the foundation, much less at the foundation. Is there
1: an objective measure of heresy? Bob, you said something that touches salvific truth, if I'm paraphrasing accurately what you were saying. Has the church traditionally given us and do we receive any measures of absolutely fundamental Christian truth? by which we can measure basic Christian truth and distinguish it from heresy?
3: Well, there's been a lot of discussion historically about that. And um, one of the ways in which the Reformed churches tried to talk about uh, important truths is in the confessions they wrote to declare what it is that they believed. But most Reformed people, I think, have felt that it is possible to disagree with certain elements of the Reformed confessions, even though they are articulating important truth, without having uh, violated... Fundamental salvific truth, so that you don 't have to subscribe it to a reformed confession to be saved, and that led to some discussion in the late sixteenth early seventeenth century on what are the fundamental articles of the faith, and that 's a useful discussion i don 't know that we anybody has come up with an absolute um, solution to that question. Um, there was never a confession that was covered only the fundamental articles of the faith. Uh, To some extent, the early creeds tried to summarize that, although—
1: that's what I was getting at. If someone says uh, God is not one in three persons, that's Catholic truth. That's universal truth. That's not something that Reformed Christians invented. Uh, The Athanasian Creed says anyone who will be saved— must affirm two great truths. The first is the Trinity, and the second is the two natures of Christ. We didn't write the Athanasian Creed. We received that with the whole Catholic Church in all times and all places, the Apostles' Creed. We didn't write that. That's a received uh, summary of the faith, promulgated and accepted by Christians for a thousand years uh, before the Reformation. Yeah, in
2: fact, that's a great point, Scott, because Sometimes we we speak loosely of the Reformed faith, and I've I've tried without being idios, idiosyncratic about it. I've tried to to correct myself and not use the term reform the Reformed faith. It's a relatively new term. Uh, correct me on that, Bob, if if I'm wrong. But very widespread now, and a lot of people use that term who don't even embrace the Reformed confession, but maybe the five points of Calvinism while at the same time it it, it separates us from the, the wider Church. What's great about our confessions is that they articulate the Christian faith from a Reformed confession. Our aim in our confessions, and not just what was confessed—we are today confessing that confession— our aim in confessing these things is to say— Look, we're confessing the Trinity. We're confessing the two natures of Christ united in one person. We're confessing the substitutionary atonement justification, all of these great, precious, and important truths that we hold together with other Christians, but we're interpreting those creeds, as we're interpreting Scripture itself, from a particular confession, a a particular interpretation of of what that means— but we're aiming at the Christian faith. Otherwise, the tendency is to always define ourselves by our distinctives. What makes us different from other Christians rather than trying to, to, to work together with other Christians to define the common faith that we affirm in a way that we believe is more faithful to Scripture, and we believe the Reformed confessions are the most faithful expression of the truths that all Christians profess. I
3: I suspect that part of the reason some people like the phrase, the Reformed faith, is that there did develop in the 19th and 20th centuries in America, I think, a sense that there is the Catholic faith that we all agree to about Trinity and Christology. And then you sort of add a layer to that, which is the evangelical faith, where For example, Lutherans and Reformed would agree on soteriology. And then there's a sort of icing on that cake, the Reformed peculiarities. Uh, And I think the phrase, the Reformed faith, is trying to make the point, not entirely successfully, as you point out, that there is an integral wholeness to Reformed Christianity, that uh, we're not simply a composite where we then put a, a few crazy Reformed notions as the icing on the cake, but that Reformed Christianity is an integrated heritage of understanding what true Christianity is. And the very word reformed really means we are Catholic Christians reformed according to the Word of God, that a a heritage that had become corrupted now has been purified by the Word of God. That's what we're really after. But I think you're right. Reformed faith can carry with it a kind of almost sectarian express is not what we want to express.
1: One of the sub-questions that came up and we'll hear uh, in a moment, is the problem of, on the one hand, being valiant for truth in the way that we mean that phrase, and on the other hand, becoming a pain in the neck, being a jerk about it, and being valiant for truth without being a jerk. And I and I want to come back to that, but that's a, a preface to this. Michael, truth today, as we t- use that word, it isn't what it was even a few hundred years ago, and it's not what it was seven or eight hundred years ago. Before the modern period, before the, say the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century, most people in the West, and as far as I know, most people in the East thought that there is such a thing as truth. We can know the truth. God is the truth. God has spoken. And the, the real question we were arguing about was, what has God said? In the modern period, we began to ask a rather different question, and that is, has God said? Now, it's it's not as if no one ever asked that question before. After all, Pilate lived a long time before the modern period, and he said to our Lord, what is truth, reflecting some level, maybe profound level, of of skepticism? But in that context, when Pilate asks that question, it's shocking because it, it is relatively unusual, even though there were some philosophers expressing a sort of skepticism about the truth. Talk a little bit about the history of truth? And where are we now, uh, hundreds of years into the modern experiment with truth?
2: Yeah, there's a division, uh, a pretty heated debate uh, about whether we are living in a postmodern age or a hypermodern age. Is postmodernism radically different from modernity, or is it simply the uh, exhaustion of modernity? Is it? Is it modernity at warp speed. All of the seeds for postmodernism were planted in modernity, in, in the Enlightenment. There's so much in postmodernism that is simply turning the volume up on some of the extreme views of the Enlightenment. And it's also a dis- dissatisfaction with Enlightenment arrogance. It, you, you find a lot, of, a lot of postmodernists going after things like autonomy and rationalism, well, we've been doing that for a while. Cornelius Van Til uh, was a pretty clever postmodernist, evidently. You know, this is this has been a critique that Reformed Christians have have made of modernity for a long time. But the problem is, where what do you put in its place? And a lot of postmodernism just has nowhere to go after modernity. I like to think of it in terms of you know, the modernist was a master. We know the truth absolutely, as God knows the truth, if there is a God. And there probably was, because how did we all get here, and how could we all be so good and rational? But that they were masters, and they knew the truth, and they were going to take you there, even if they had to use armies to get you there. Uh, if you don't want to be free, we'll make you free. And that then you get out of that, of course, the totalitarian movements, d- democracy capitalism and communism, you get all of these sort of uh, grandiose movements that are seen as the outcropping of universal reason. Well, there's been a lot of critique of that, but we've moved from being masters to being tourists. And that's sort of the, the postmodern spirit, I think, is, is tourism. Tourists aren't going anywhere. They don't have a particular destination. They're just going around you know, from booth to booth at Vanity Fair, uh, tasting a little bit of that, a little bit of this, putting it all together in a photo album. Christians are pilgrims. We're not masters. We haven't arrived. Even Abraham was looking for a a greater city whose builder and maker is God. We're not there yet, but we're also not just straying like stray dogs from one place to another. We are headed in a direction— that gives us a place to stand, a place to be valiant for truth, and yet not make ourselves the focus. G.K. Chesterton said at the turn of the 20th century, what has changed, and he was describing the modern age, and it could very easily describe our postmodern era today. He says that the biggest change that I see is that humility has moved from the organ of ambition to the organ of conviction. In other words, he said people used to be sure about the truth but unsure of themselves. Now they're unsure of the truth and sure of themselves. I think that's really true. If you turn on daily news programs, I put news in quotes there, talk shows where people are going back and forth with their various positions, it's not so much that they are sure of the truth as it is that they're sure of themselves. We hear more news reporters, and frankly preachers today, revealing more of their con- personal conviction, conviction their, their personal enthusiasm, or their, enthusiasm, personal, or their, or their whatever, personal whatever, and less of the truth, of the truth being expounded, expounded and clearly articulated and defended, and defended in a persuasive and clear manner. In our age, Bob... Wake up. <laughs> I always had
1: that effect on him.
2: In our age, Bob...
3: Mike is marvelously soporific.
2: <laughs> How's the narcolepsy doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: Mike has a stick over there. He keeps poking Bob every few minutes. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, exactly. Where are we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll take him back to the nursing home right after the show. <laughs> there's a There's a car out there waiting. In our age, just to say to someone, this is true and that is false, is taken not as a claim about the nature of things, but as an an attempt to exercise power by one person over another person. So we have that problem. And then on the other hand, there are some people who are, and we've probably all been guilty, certainly I have been guilty of it, and you men are too charming to have ever been guilty of this, of being a jerk about the truth. Help us navigate between those two poles.
3: Well, I think what Mike has been saying is is very, very helpful. Uh, When we think about understanding where Uh, modern thought and postmodern thought has been going. And as we think about the intellectual world in which many of us uh, operate, I I do think, and this is my little historian's uh, add-on, is that um, when we think of what Pilate had to say, I suspect what Pilate had to say was not the word of a philosopher, but the word of a government official, uh, what is truth, it really doesn't matter because power is the only thing that matters. And uh, a lot of people in this world operate that way. Truth is, as you know, Marx would have uh, reminded us, simply a rationalization for what we want to do anyway. And so there are a lot of, and have always been through all history, through whatever intellectual system is dominating at any point in history, there are a lot of practical cynics who really do believe truth doesn't matter and that power is the only thing that matters. If,
2: if there isn't a, an objective truth... Outside of all of our interpretations, something that we're striving for, we don't get perfectly, but we're something that none of us owns, but we're all after. If there isn't that, then all that's left is power. And so you have the rise of demagogues. I mean, what came out of Nietzsche and uh, what came out of uh, so much of that cynical view of truth. Was basically a capitulation to people who could promise the most, persuade the most, and and uh, use technology and art most effectively to persuade the masses to embrace abominable ideologies.
3: And the problem, I think, becomes that if if we become too nitpicky and nasty in our internal debates about uh, truth as to what the Bible teaches, we run the very serious risk of only feeding that cynicism, that nobody knows the truth, the truth doesn't matter anyway, and so I might as well just, you know, get the best I can out of this world and my ambition, because nobody really knows about the next world.
1: My name is Jack Miller. Given the visceral reaction against any concept of real truth in this day and age, how do you frame this question in order to address it with the salt necessary to effectively appeal to those christians
3: and also those can't we just get along average joes out there it seems to me that for too many today truth is an uncomfortable and divisive word so how do we
1: leverage that negative even as jesus of the new testament might into a positive for the truth of
2: the gospel that's a great question first of all we have to put out there as i think this is the the thing that we lead with the tr- the truth matters ultimately because we're sinners who need to be redeemed, and if there is no truth, then there is no gospel. There is no good news for us. It's just my truth and your truth. Uh, I think also we have to distinguish between political freedom and uh, religious pluralism. I, I think there are a lot of a lot of conservative Christians out there who, unfortunately confuse those two things and say, for example, uh, with with Islam, let's just uh, drive them all out as Israel drove out the Canaanites, and uh, they confuse political uh, coercion against Islam with, uh, w- with the call to bring the gospel to the nations. On the other hand, you have people who uh, confuse those two also by saying, since we want to have political freedom and and uh, you know want to all get along in the civil sphere. You can't say anything that is divisive when it comes to ultimate truth claims. And so as Christians, we not only have to say, we have to evidence that we are on the side of political pluralism and on the side of still proclaiming with all of the saints of all of the ages, including the martyrs, there is no salvation— in any name other than Jesus Christ. What's the difference then, Bob, between
3: rejecting the Koran and explaining why it's wrong and burning it? Well, I think the point Mike is making is an excellent one, that one uh, reflects the necessary use of power by the state and in the political realm, and the other reflects the uh, the work of the church to hold up the truth um, and to wait upon the Spirit to bring people to see the truth. Uh, The the state seeks to exercise power in the interests of justice, which is ideally to protect all of its citizens. And the church is holding up the truth in the spirit of Jesus, who said, you shall know the truth, that is me, and the truth shall set you free. But the freedom that Jesus is talking about there is a very different kind of freedom than what we often mean as freedom in America. The freedom that Jesus brings is a freedom from the bondage to sin, the freedom from condemnation, the freedom of, from alienation from God, and the freedom of, from alienation from one another. So it, it has lots of implications. The, the trouble we have working that out today is that um, for centuries, most Christians did believe in using the coercive power of the state to advance the cause of the church. And that has— Including our own tradition. Uh, never criticize our own tradition. <laughs> We're here to criticize others. <laughs> no, exactly. It's it's true. It's one of the things uh, with which we uh, would disagree with John Calvin. Calvin would no, no doubt, if he were just plunked in our day, be shocked at our uh, willingness to tolerate a pluralistic uh, society. But as as Christians, I think it is one of the things we have learned is that coercion in the name of Christ is ultimately counterproductive. Nevertheless, we have left such a strong imprint on history that we can understand why certain people find it hard to believe what we're saying today. And uh, so we need, as Americans in particular, to insist on the freedom to practice Christianity as we believe the Bible teaches it, and to be critical of what we see as false religions, including Islam. Uh, But that should not lead us to unnecessary inflammatory, if you'll excuse the expression, acts uh, such as burning the Quran. I do think as Americans, we have to insist that uh, American citizens have the right to burn the Quran. Or the Bible. Or the Bible. But uh, we have to insist that that's not really a way to advance the cause of Christ. So yeah, it, it is difficult because governments tend to see that the, the solution to the problem of truth is to teach relativism and that this will lead to a more peaceable society. And lots of people have bought into that, including lots of liberal Christians. Uh, So we have to articulate this rather more complicated uh, position that we can hold to an absolute truth while being able politically to get along with others. You're listening to
1: Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I'm Scott Clark, and we're
3: talking with Michael Horton
1: and W. Robert Godfrey about what it means to be valiant for truth. When we come back, we're going to address the question of what it means to be valiant for truth, not just individually as Christians in a pluralistic society, but what needs to happen for the church as church to become valiant
0: for truth. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, Jay Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. Wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church.
2: This is Brett from Oregon and talking about being dying for the truth. I know there's wisdom involved and I want to be valiant for the truth in a wise way, but I go to a church that I would not necessarily say is is very valiant for the truth, and I want to be. I don't think it's wise to maybe be more forceful than my own church is. What steps do I take to help urge our church to be more valiant with the truth? Well, I think there's a real disconnect between our church websites and what we confess. Here I'm talking about when I say we, confessional churches. What I mean by that is if you go to a lot of church websites, they'll say what really defines us is that we're a family church, or that we are a friendly church, or that we are uh, a welcoming church, or that we are uh, an evangelistic church. Now, all of this, of course, is good, but we have historically defined the church. We're not talking about a good church, a weak church, a strong church, but just a church by three marks— the Word is rightly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, and there's discipline. I don't see that on a lot of church websites. You know, we're working on a lot of things, but we do have these. So I think it makes a big difference when we are presenting ourselves, not only to the community, but to our own people as something other than an institution founded by Christ with a commission not one that it negotiates with its king, but one that has been given to it by its king, defined in terms of handing over, delivering something it has been given and it has been entrusted with, namely, the gospel. So if, if we're not valiant for the truth, again, in that wise way that the caller mentions, but if we're not valiant for it, if truth isn't what people think of first, and particular truths, not just truth in general, then the question is, are we really functioning as a church that that proclaims the gospel? Sometimes in the name of proclaiming the gospel and mission and evangelism, we actually don't get around to proclaiming it.
3: Right. And I I, I think the example you use of websites is a great one to remind us that there is a difference between what a church is and what it confesses on the one hand and how it markets itself on another. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of churches, I think, have really muddled those those categories. I, I think it does reflect perhaps the postmodern world in which we live. That churches think what people want to hear and what will draw them to church is that we're friendly, that we're family oriented, that we have programs for all age groups, and and that does draw people. I mean, the the yes. the reality is,
1: every pastor will tell you when when a new family comes to your congregation, there's a good likelihood that one of the first questions they're going to ask is, do you have a program for my three-year-old? Do you have a program for my 12-year-old? And do you do you have a program for my 17-year-old? And if you don't, there's a good chance that you're not going to keep that family. I agree with you. We ought to be critical of the program-driven church.
3: Well, I didn't say that. I said we have to be critical if the marketing really does define entirely what the church is about. I, I think we have to recognize as the church That There are a lot of people out there who no longer have a family of their own. They've moved away from the family. And so they're looking for familial and, and friendship connections in the church. There are a lot of people out there who are very anxious about raising children. They don't have a strong continuity of generations that help them think through raising children. So they want the church to help them raise the children and 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 answer questions they don't have answered. I I don't think we should reject those concerns as legitimate and even important concerns. It's just that we shouldn't allow that to completely define the character of the church. And so if if we want to market ourselves as as a friendly program church, that may not be the worst thing in the world as long as In the actual life of the church, we remain clear that the truth of God is at the center of what we do. And if you know God according to his truth in both the law and the gospel, then you're going to be in a better position to be a parent, to be a friend, to be part of the the family of Christ. So it is a complicated business in the strange world in which we live.
1: Isn't the danger here, though, that when we... Capitulate to the demand that we meet all these expectations. That what we're really saying is, we want to succeed. That is, have n- numerical success at all costs. And failure, as the world defines failure, that is a, a failure of the institution to con- to continue to exist, is not an option.
2: Yeah, but I th- I think that people do it out of the best motives very often just not really counting the cost for example what happens when you promise people all of these programs for different age groups and so forth the most segregate it used to be said that the, the the most segregated day of the week was sunday because blacks and whites were not in the same churches today it's not only racial and ethnic it's it's demographic in terms of age groups segmentation in terms of marketing You can go to a church that—even in the same church you have the contemporary service and the traditional service—you can have a person—you meet these people now who have gone from nursery to children's church to youth group to college ministry and have never been a member of a visible church. They've never worshiped with the whole congregation at any particular time. And then surprise, surprise, 70 percent— of those raised in evangelical churches, of course, the question is, were they really raised in the church at all? But 70% are unchurched by their sophomore year in college. Well, the question that we ought to raise is, were they ever in the church in the first place? And then you get the statistics from uh, sociologists telling us that across the board, conservative to liberal, most Christian young people raised in evangelical as well as mainline Protestantism Cannot tell you what they believe or why they believe it, even in the most rudimentary or basic terms. Now, that's not just the Unitarians. That's in churches that if you ask them, what do you believe, they could go to their vault and open it up and say, ask the secretary to run off a copy of their confession. And if you ask them if they believe it, they'd say, sure. If you ask them certain yes or no questions, they would answer them the right way. But the people themselves can leave and go off to college and not be able to—not even be aware that those answers would be given. It's not that the, that the gospel is denied in these circumstances. It's that it's just never really taught and communicated and, and a part of the, the regular diet from childhood to adulthood.
3: Right and the 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 great I mean, there there are ironies here obviously that people are looking for family and help raising children and they go to churches so large most people are anonymous in relation to one another and the children are segregated Yeah the families
2: divide on Sunday
3: Right <laughs> right. right so that's that's ironic and uh, but but the the fundamental danger is that people think they're involved in church which ideally need or fundamentally needs to be the meeting place between god and his people and what church becomes too often is in fact a place where i i simply want to come away feeling good about myself right right so you know being valiant for truth it is not to nitpick about particulars about what uh, other churches are doing wrong but but to to raise before the Christian community this great question, are you concerned about God? One of the great questions of the Bible is, uh, is there no fear of God before their eyes? And I think our country today is full of churches in which there is no fear of God. Uh, God is at best the kindly grandfather that just wants to give us a quarter so we can go to the showing how old I am, (laughs) go go to the 5 and 10 and buy something that'll make us happy.
2: 5 and 10 would be... Uh,
1: That was the the antique version of Walmart. Um, Okay. Let me challenge the premise with which you began, Mike, and I think you've accepted Bob to some degree, maybe not to the same degree, that is that people are acting out of the best of motives. And let me confess that as a former pastor of a small, and some people would say failing congregation, there were times when I did not act out of the purest of motives. I looked at the budget, I looked at our attendance, and I said to myself, what do we need to do to get more bodies in the door? I think, based on the intervening years— So you turned it
2: into a mortuary?
1: (laughs) The intervening years uh, and the conversations I've had with pastors. For example, at uh, regional assemblies and national assemblies, when pastors get together, there are three things that they always discuss—buildings, bodies, And budgets. I call them the killer bees. Now, I'm not saying that there's no love for truth among those guys who have those conversations, but there's a lot of pressure at, for example, at the annual meeting. Uh, And I've had businessmen say to me, look, we need to have a business model for the church. And, you know, have we grown by 7% over last year? And what do we need to do to make that happen? So there are people, maybe they are well meaning, but they're also making some pretty, uh, let's say, sharp calculations. About what what to do, can we afford to say that this is all well-meaning, or is there really a, a kind of cynicism about truth and about the church standing for truth that has uh, uh, perhaps taken hold? And in that light, and we can we can talk about that in just a second. But John has a question. In my talking with people who aren't confessionalists who don't believe, you know, in the confessions,
2: they claim that confessionalists limit salvation to the church alone and also that they don't allow the working of the holy spirit
1: are the confessional churches too narrow by saying that as the westminster confession says and as the westminster and as the belgian confession says that outside of the visible institutional church ordinarily there is no salvation and then having done that are we in some way
2: limiting the holy spirit outside the church and maybe even inside the church well, ordinarily i think is is the key term there we have no promise that god will save people outside of the ministry of the visible church that, that doesn't well be, the, the holy spirit can do whatever he wills he can work however he wills and he god certainly is sovereign and free in his sovereignty to save whomever he will we have the confidence that uh, our children uh, covenant children who die in the lord are with the lord that they they haven't heard the gospel and responded to it the the question is what we have a right to to believe what we uh, we we have a right to hold on to and cling to a promise and the promise is look at look at the book of acts and this goes back to your last uh point scott of course we should look for The growth of the church, and there is a a kind of cynical uh, assumption that you could have in reform circles sometimes that if we're if we're growing, something must be wrong. (laughs) Somebody must have sold out somewhere. Exactly, and if you are reaching people who aren't churched, and you're you know you you're you're trying to do all sorts of things to reach out to non Christians, you must be somehow fudging. With uh, with things. Well, throughout the book of Acts, we read that the church grew, it expanded. Uh, The Lord was adding daily to the church those who were being saved, and yet the phrase that is most typically used throughout Acts is the Word of God spread. Not that the church grew, but the Word of God spread. The Word creates the church.
3: Yeah, I think when you look at that statement that goes all the way back to Cyprian in the ancient church period, outside the church there is no salvation— Uh, What he particularly means is that you can't be claimed to be connected to the head, which is Christ, and not be connected to the body, that Christ came to save individuals to create a new humanity, and that new humanity experiences its life here and now in the fellowship of the church. So if I say, well, I want to belong to Christ, but I don't want to belong to the church in any sense— Uh, You are really so denying what Jesus came to teach and to say that it it seems rather heretical to go back to a point we were making uh, earlier today. On the other hand, I think I hear in this question, although I may be wrong, uh, what some Reformed people, in my judgment, erroneously have said, namely that the whole ministry of the church to the unbelieving world is through the preaching on official services on Sunday— and that there is no function for individual Christians to be carrying the word into the world. I don't. Know, I think that's just flat wrong. I think it's contrary to the Scriptures. All Christians bear a responsibility to say a word for Christ in appropriate circumstances, and that the Holy Spirit may well use that outside the official meetings of the institutional church, but always with an. An aim of seeing people brought into the institutional church. And the institutional church never can have life or success except where it is uh, praying for the Holy Spirit to work and recognizing its labors must ultimately be utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. Carolyn has a question along those lines.
2: The Reformed position on evangelism is focused on the preaching of Christ from the pulpit primarily, but I have some questions about that. How do we get people to come to church who have no interest in doing so? And therefore, is there a place for street evangelism, public square evangelism, and other such venues? Great question. Well, this goes back to the point Bob was making. You know, still there with street evangelism and other forms, you have public evangelism, basically bringing the the proclamation of the Word out of the the church building and the public assembly into the streets— now, it was, it was common for, for people to debate in the marketplace for Greeks and in the synagogues for Jews, as Paul did. Today, it has different connotations. People associate that kind of witnessing with not reasoning. Now, it's not the place where you reason. It's the place where you walk from one shop to another. So we have to think about that when we're doing this. I think the more important point, to piggyback on what Bob was saying, is we need Christians— to be so well-grounded in the Scriptures that they know what they believe and why they believe it, and they can, in a very natural way, in daily relationships with friends and coworkers and family members, can gossip the gospel, can talk about it. It so permeates their thoughts and their life that they're ready at the drop of a hat to have a normal conversation without having to reach for four spiritual laws or other canned approaches, they can articulate their faith, they can talk about the difference that it has made in their own lives while nevertheless focusing on the content of the gospel itself. That is is how people particularly, who will never darken the door of a church themselves— We'll hear the gospel in a meaningful way. There are things also like Christianity Explored, where it's more programmatic. You, you invite friends over from the neighborhood to watch a video uh, going through the gospel of Mark and then shut it off and talk about it. It's a launching pad for discussion. There are lots of things we need to start doing in this post-Christian era, as if America ever was Christian, but anyway, it's a wonderful day in one sense because the era of civil religion is kind of eroding and Christianity is is relatively unknown in our neighborhoods, and we can actually invite people over, hopefully after the culture wars <laughs> die down, and articulate the Christian faith as the law and the gospel that i think is something that really only lay people can do throughout the week far more e- effectively than ministers and then of course bring them to the public to the public service but i'm i'm a little worried too I, from what i hear that the the proper emphasis on the public ministry of word and sacrament is leading some to an excessive position, in my view, where they they no longer believe that the Christian has responsibility to bear witness to Christ out in the world.
1: The man who was born blind was able to say, I was blind, now I see. His parents, according to John, refused, knew the truth, knew what Jesus had done, knew who Jesus was, and refused to give witness to the truth. So the man who was born blind witnessed to the reality of what had happened. He witnessed to the person who had done it. He challenged those who queried him about it. Well, maybe you want to become his, his followers too. Now, the, that's fairly rudimentary uh, witness, but it's a lot better than what his parents did, which was refuse to give witness. Bob, you've often talked about conversations that you've had with friends, uh, neighbors, in the coffee shop. How do those conversations happen, and
3: how do you think about those? Well, I, I think the point you're making is exactly right, that especially in the world in which we live in, the place to begin often is in talking about what the Lord has done for for and means to me as an individual. Now, that runs the postmodern risk of saying, well, that's nice for you, but it doesn't have anything to say to me. But I think we do have to then move beyond that. I think Mike's point is is really good. We have to think— creatively in terms of the culture in which we find ourselves as to how we can be about bringing the good news of Jesus Christ as far and as wide as we can. I, I think in some places that may mean special evangelistic meetings. I think that's fine. We all remember Amy Semple McPherson standing on a chair on a street corner, praying uh, with her hands up, and she'd gather a crowd that way. Now, we we also have to think today, does that just mean we make Christianity look like a bunch of cranks. I mean, that's a fair question to think about. Um, I think more fundamentally, a lot of our traditional evangelistic methods in America assumed, maybe legitimately, maybe not, that people knew the basic gospel message, and what they needed to do was to have a moment of reflection to decide if they would commit to that message or not. So a lot of our traditional evangelism was not so much about communicating the truth, but of calling people to accept the truth that they already knew. I think we have to face the fact that probably most people that we're going to come in contact with today don't know the truth. And therefore, to turn evangelism into just a moment of decision isn't going to work in our time. I've often thought that maybe we need to think about Mormon practice, not that I'm soft on Mormonism, that they want to make a kind of friendly initial contact at the door and want you to commit to about six weeks of them coming back and talking about what it is they believe. They recognize you can't convert them at the door. You have to help explain their version of the truth and then get people to commit to it. And uh, I think we have to do more of that in our time.
2: The situation the early Christians had is very similar now to ours. Right. Right and they had long periods of catechesis didn't they were were uh, teaching they did and you weren't you know you you had a lot to 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 cover. Cover to cover in that time and we hear from students who come from Nigeria and other places and they definitely do that uh i'm i I'm kind of uh, amazed when they talk about uh, the reason you know they come a lot of a lot of the people they're talking to have come out of animism folk religion all kinds of things and i i think is is that any different, really, from both the New Agey or the the sort of academic culture of your average college-aged person today? The idols are no less entrenched in the United States today than they are in any other part of the world. That takes time to talk, talk people out of. Of course, the Holy Spirit ultimately is the only one who can do that.
1: Every Christian has an ordinarily a network of people with whom they have relationships, people at work, family, neighbors, and many of those people may well, in our time and place, be completely ignorant about the truth of Christianity and may need to be taught from the ground up. And we may need to slow down, for example, our six weeks of church membership classes that meet for 25 minutes A week for six weeks, and bang—you're a church member. I was raised with virtually no knowledge of Christianity in the middle of the country, and not too far from what some people would call the Bible Belt. But I couldn't have really told you the difference between the Old and New Testament, and needed a lot of basic Christian instruction. That was thirty years ago. If that was true then and there, how how much more now is it true? One last question, men, and that is this: This is one I've heard many times. Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And some people have concluded from that, that truth is entirely personal, and it can't be propositional. And others have reacted to that claim by saying, no, truth is always and only propositional. And this is—we actually touched on this already. How do we relate person and proposition when we talk about truth?
2: Well, first, in our reflection, is in the Reformed tradition, we've talked about— the Word of God as, first and foremost, the hypostatic Word. Uh, As Bob was mentioning earlier, the Word of God is, first of all, Jesus Christ, and he is qualitatively different from any other form of of the Word. Uh, So, first and foremost, the truth is a person. That's true. But that person is also the content of the message the Father has spoken to us by his Spirit. And uh, there's no way to communicate that without communicating it. And it has to be understood. Faith is not only assent, but it involves assent to to certain things that are said. The Word of God is is is, first of all, the hypostatic Word, Jesus Christ. But secondly, we have said the Word of God is... The sacramental word, the means of grace, faith comes by hearing, Paul said, and hearing by the word of Christ. Preaching Christ is the means by which the Holy Spirit creates faith. Then thirdly, the word of God is scripture, and certainly scripture has a lot of propositions in it, but it can't be reduced to propositions. In all three forms of the word of God I just mentioned, the truth is coming to us, is being spoken to us by the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. Those are three persons, and that truth is communication. And just as in our own interpersonal communication, we're not always making assertions when we speak, when we communicate. We're making promises, we're making threats, we're assuring people, we're, we're comforting people, we're warning people. We do all sorts of things. We get married by using words. God accomplishes great things other than, in addition to, stating propositions by the word that he uses.
3: So we don't want to set the personal over against the propositional. In Scripture, they're always working together and in harmony. Maybe I could also just add to that, when we want to be valiant for the truth— We don't want to just be talking about what the world or many in the church call doctrines. Uh, There has been something of a doctrinal revival of Calvinism, but that isn't, in my judgment, a real revival of Reformed Christianity. Uh, Reformed Christianity is not only a matter of doctrinal truths, it's also a matter of worship truths and of piety truths and of life truths, so that these things combine together to really represent what Reformed Christianity is all about. And we want to be valiant, not obnoxious, not belligerent, not grumpy, although I'm always tempted, but we, we, we want to be valiant for these truths because they're liberating. Because they're the will of our Heavenly Father and our Savior for our good.
2: And and
0: the good of the people we're talking to.
1: You've been listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.